So welcome to our first GLF Live here in Nairobi, Kenya at the C4E Craft Africa headquarters. I'm Natasha Elkington and I'll be your host for today's session, a very exciting online live session. And it is my pleasure and privilege to introduce to you the CEO of C4E Craft and the Director General of ECRAF, the first African woman to hold this prestigious position in the 52-year history of CGIR research centers, Dr. Eliane Ubalijoro. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making the time for us. So, um, Dr. Eliane Ubalijoro has a degree in agriculture and a doctorate in molecular genetics. Eliane has worked as a science director in the biotech sector before pivoting to the public-private sector partnerships to improve the lives of women and smallholder farmers in emerging countries. So with your work and life experiences, <clears throat> a colorful canvas spanning from your upbringing in Rwanda, studying and working in North America and Europe, um, working in the field of science, agriculture, genetics, and digital innovation, I think we should start by asking you if you can share a bit of your personal journey and your connection to the earth and her landscapes, you know, where it began and where we are now. So I, I was born in 1972 in Rwanda, and uh, I spent a lot of time in the countryside, a lot of time with smallholder farmers, a lot of time uh, enjoying the beauty of forests. And um, I grew up on three continents, and I grew up in Africa, North America, and Europe. And my memories of my childhood are all connected to the earth and all connected to the lessons I learned from my mother around how do you take care of the earth, composting, recycling, um, really living a circular economy, just because that's how people lived in the countryside in Africa for a millennia. And so, and so that is the, my grounding. And having grown up uh, all over the world, what I realized that the things I took for granted around reusing, recycling, uh, regeneration, have become, uh, in the 21st century, really central to how we're looking at growing green economies around the world. And so for me, it's been an interesting journey. At 17, I moved to Canada, where I studied uh, general agriculture. And uh, during my undergraduate uh, studies, the Civil War started in Rwanda. And so I went home during the Civil War and, and worked uh, in research in agriculture, and it was very difficult. And so I realized that uh, my dream of working with smallholder farmers would have to probably be put on hold. And so I decided to study molecular genetics because I was interested in the cutting edge of innovation. If I had been able to go back to Rwanda, for me, the cutting edge of an innovation was really working with smallholder farmers. But given the circumstances I was in, I felt that working at the interface of genetics, of um, discoveries that were going to change how we relate to DNA, because during my studies, the first human genome was sequenced, um, bioinformatics arised. I realized that in order to be at the cutting edge in North America, I needed to be working at the interface of molecular genetics and bioinformatics. And that actually allowed me, when I finished my PhD, I had several job offers. Mm -hmm. And I joined uh, a biotechnology firm in molecular diagnostics. So for many people, they assume biotechnology means you're working uh, on genetically modified crops, but that's not, not the reality. Biotechnology is a vast field that uses DNA as a tool. And in my case, it was really how to use DNA as a diagnostic tool 
for the food industry in terms of uh, knowing whether there are microbial contaminations in food, uh, environmental contaminations, as well as bioterrorism, because at the time was uh, finishing my PhD, there was a lot of issues around anthrax and how do we ensure that we're able to detect bioterrorism, so terrorism using um, microorganisms that can be lethal in ways that uh, we can stop them. And so those were the areas I worked in in the biotechnology industry. And after that, uh, I had my daughter, and I really wanted to explore how to start doing work back in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Things at that point were much calmer. Like my daughter was born in 2004, and so it was a new era. And so when I started going back in 2005, I realized that it was a really great moment for me because I had been working in the biotechnology industry for five years, and so I knew what it was to work in an innovation ecosystem where everything was built, where money was not uh, a limitation, but ensuring you had the right people on the bus doing the work was the most critical part. And so going back to Africa, I held a workshop on building African bioeconomies, and I invited um, people from India, from South Africa, from the whole East African region. A colleague from McGill came with me to, to Rwanda, and um, this was bringing people together from the academic side, from the technology transfer side, from government side, and the private sector to say, how do we grow African bioeconomies? And so we held that workshop in 2007, and for me it was an eye-opener because I realized that innovation ecosystems had gaps, major gaps in Africa. And in order to fill those major gaps, we needed visionary leadership to create spaces that don't exist. And John Cotter, who's a professor at Harvard, he says the difference between management and leadership is leadership is about creating systems and management is about looking at the systems that exist and ensure they function properly. And so in situations where you need to invent things, you really need very strong leadership. So what I realized is we had leadership gaps at the interface of how can we work from academic, nonprofit, government, the private sector, and work effectively to, break, to build these local innovation-based economies that would harness our natural resources, but in ways that build knowledge economies. And I would say that was the beginning of a journey for me, working at the interface of agriculture, environment, health, and how the three interacted and were critical to building strong bioeconomies. And so uh, at McGill, I had the opportunity to meet a former Prime Minister of Canada, Honorable Joe Clark, who really um, made me see the critical importance of public-private partnerships and how they're critical to building these spaces, because we need government intervention, but we also need to build the private sector. And so it was a really great opportunity for me to look at how we can build those within the health sector, the environmental sector, and the agricultural sector. And so I'd say my journey since then has been doing work at the interface of biodiversity and health and discovering new medicines, at the interface of the environment and markets that are, have been emerging. Now we talk about the biodiversity credit market, but for um, over, um, since 2005, I'd say the carbon markets have been critical. But I remember when I started looking at these carbon markets back um, in the early 2000s, Africa only had 5% of those markets. Right. And I thought, in order to grow Africa sustainably 
and to build prosperity, it had to be green. And so I knew we were going to have to focus on climate funding. And so I'd say if I compare of where I was in 2007 thinking about all this versus where we are today in 2023 after a very successful COP15 in Montreal where we had biodiversity and the private sector together in Montreal, we had the most private sector presence for a biodiversity COP. We're in a much different space around nature and finance. And so it's a great place to be harnessing both. So I'd say that's been my journey to getting here. Wow, fantastic journey indeed. Um, there's so much from there that, that we can go into, and I wish we could, but, but thank you for explaining to us and showing us you know, where you've come from. I, guess, I feel, before I jump into the next questions though, um, I think it's important in a way just to mention, like, you know, because during the, I guess you were studying when the genocide then happened in Rwanda. So how did that affect you? Where were you? What was that? Because I think so, it's still relevant. Well, for me, so 1994, I was writing my master's degree in April. Mm. I didn't know if most of the people I loved in Rwanda were alive. Mm -hmm. So during the 100 days of the genocide against yeah. the Tutsis in Rwanda, I was writing my master's degree around plant virus interactions. So, so, so the contrast of what was happening in my motherland yeah. and, and what I was doing in my student room in Canada was so huge that it was very difficult to reconcile. And what's been very interesting to me, for example, is in the years since, I've met some of the um, people who worked in uh, Beans Jeans Bank. Beans are really, really critical to Rwandan economy mm -hmm. and to our um, traditional food systems. And uh, when the genocide happened in April, people were unable to harvest their crops. So when the economy had to be restarted, we needed to replenish the stocks of beans uh, for the country. And because there were gene banks around the world that held copies of the genetic diversity of, of beans from Rwanda were able to restart. Wow. And so people don't really understand the relationship between seed banks that hold that biodiversity that is so critical to our food systems mm -hmm. and what needs to happen when uh, you have uh, terrible situations right. in the world, conflict, and, and need to restart economies. And so it's important to understand that in order to keep hope alive, mm -hmm. gene banks are very central to that, especially for our food systems. Well, I'm very glad I asked that question. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, so where, from where you sit now, you know, looking out into this planet in crisis, you know, what, what are the hopes that drive you? So, so what drives me? I mean, here today, I, I have the privilege of, of, of being at the helm of C4 aircraft um, with our campus here in Nairobi, between the UN campus and Kuro Forest. Uh, every day I'm reminded of the work of Wangari Mathai in terms of establishing this sanctuary that so many of us in Nairobi get to enjoy every day. And if you think about the work she did, I mean, she started with small groups of women uh, preparing seedlings to go out there and plant trees. And if we look at her legacies, I mean, there's been billions of trees being, that have been planted because of the leadership of this amazing woman. And again, when I was talking earlier about the importance of leadership mm. and building innovation ecosystems, mm. this is a critical one. And so how do we take where we are in 2023 and think about 2030 and how can C4 aircraft and our partners help accelerate the work that we need to restore forests around the world, to bring more trees 
on farms and, and you know, being here in Kenya, how do we help Kenya uh, achieve its 15 billion tree agenda? And so there's just so much amazing work to be done. But we also need to ensure how do we ensure that we plant the right tree at the right time in the right place, given how climate change has changed conditions around the world to ensure that those seedlings, when they're put on the into the ground, that they grow and they thrive. And ideally, how do we ensure that they thrive, whether it's enforced in terms of restoring our biodiversity or whether it's on farm, that they allow a long-term income for farmers, that they allow carbon sequestration to improve uh, soil health. We know that about 65% of soils in Africa are degraded and a third of the soils around the world are degraded. So the health of our soils is going to determine the health of our food systems, which will determine the health of our population globally. So that interlinkage for me is a critical one around the work we do. So what does this role mean to you then, to be the CEO of uh, C4ECOF and the DG of ECOF, you know, for, to you and actually women and Africa in general? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm, I've, I feel very privileged. I was welcomed in a very warm and beautiful way when I arrived here in Nairobi. And uh, so for me, it's really about how do I continue the legacy of my mother who taught me my first lessons around sustainability, around living in harmony with nature? How do I continue and build on the legacy of what Mwangari Mathai has brought uh, to Kenya? How do I continue on the legacy of all the people who ha are working tirelessly to grow seedlings, to nurture them, to plant them on the ground, whether you're at the Great Green Wall, um, uh, in Africa or whether you're in South Africa, how do we look at the whole continent? And how do we look at the critical importance of female smallholder farmers? Because we know that most of the smallholder farmers on the, of the continent are women. Yeah. And so how we support them in terms of building prosperity, of having sustainable enterprises for being able to feed their families and to contribute to their communities in terms of building social capital is very critical. And so. For me, it's a deep honor to be here at this time, seven years to 2030, and it's like, how do we accelerate this work? How do we accelerate it for good? How do we accelerate it knowing that Africa's population will double by 2050, that by 2035, half of the workforce on the planet will be African? So the work we're doing today is critical not only to Africa, but to carbon sequestration for the whole planet. So how we look at keeping, um, the temperature of the whole planet within a two degree Celsius range, but also how do we take leadership as Africans to contribute to sustainability? And so at C4 ICRAF, we talk about trees, people, and planet. And so it's really how do we integrate our space? We know that there's other spaces that are very critical towards net zero, but we are very important in that work around how do we protect 30% uh, of land um, around the world and bring back biodiversity. So I see that as really critical. And at the same time, how do we have climate resilient food systems that are going to have the needed productivity while allowing the soil health that is needed and bringing back biodiversity? So we want nature positive, climate resilient food systems. And so I think those are critical, not only for Africa, but for the whole planet. 
and how we look at value chains, because the value we add at each level of the food chain in terms of is critical to how much money goes back to smallholder farmers, how much money goes back to Africans on the continent. The African Development Bank predicts that by 2025, if it's business as usual, Africa will be importing $110 billion worth of food. And so I want to know, how do we transform that into $110 billion that have been invested locally yeah. for green, uh, resilient, climate resilient food systems that empower local populations, that empower mothers everywhere, mm -hmm. that ensure we have adequate nutrition for all children on the continent, and that we have food systems that flourish and allow us to be competitive in terms of our interregional trade, um, supporting the African Free Trade Agreement, mm -hmm. and ensure that we are building systems that build hope, but also build opportunities for our local population, right. given the youthfulness of our African population. Brilliant, I love it. So I guess I was going to jump in there in terms of, because you said you have a daughter and you're a mother. Yes. You know, and in terms of involving the younger generation, yes, what are your yes, thoughts yes. on that? Because I think they're also critical in how, because this is their future. Absolutely, absolutely. So what are your thoughts on how we you know, involve the younger yes. generation yes. In, in this project and mission that we have? Well, I think it's a really, really critical one. Um, my daughter is currently studying in Ottawa in Canada and just finished her second year of university. And the, the forest fires in mm -hmm. eastern Canada have been affecting the air quality in all of the eastern part of North America. Right. And so she was writing to me yesterday around the air quality and where she is. And I was like, you know, we need to do so much more in the space of uh, restoration, in the space of fighting forest fires, preventing forest fires, combining indigenous knowledge around the prevention of forest fires, the amazing knowledge we have around satellite data and understanding uh, forest fires and being able to prevent them uh, are critical things we need to do. And we need to achieve what we need to do in terms of stopping deforestation, um, bringing the needed biodiversity back in terms of for forests to diminish the losses linked to pests, mm -hmm. and have healthy food systems that aren't accelerating deforestation, but are actually allowing us to produce more on less land because it's healthier. And so those are very critical things we need to do. And uh, for example, um, with the uh, Global Landscape Forum, the youth involved in restoration, you know, it, it's very important because they're going to be the stewards of nature and they are the leaders of tomorrow. And so how we are going to become the good ancestors that they need <laughs> yes. is critical to how we move forward. And so I see it as, as vital because everything we do is interconnected. The forest fires in North America, the deforestations that can happen in the global south. We all collectively need to work together because of the interdependence that links us so deeply in terms of preservation of biodiversity, in terms of pres uh, prevention of uh, future pandemics, because as we bring back a biodiversity, we have less chances of diseases from wildlife uh, coming into humans, like COVID-19, the principle of zoonosis in terms of diseases from wildlife that get transmitted to humans. We know that the accelerated loss of biodiversity makes humans the number one target for emerging diseases. Right. So as we bring back biodiversity, we're contributing to One Health, so the health of 
the environment and the health of our human population and the health of our, our, our food systems as well. And so how we prepare the younger generations to do this work is very critical. How we support them in terms of their dreams and vision is even more important. And this is why I see uh, the GLF platform as so important, because what it does is it, it creates um, communities of practice that share what they've learned. Here uh, last week at uh, our aircraft campus, they were able to learn from our scientists the work that's being done here, and they can uh, connect it to our country offices across Africa and have their work linked to our country offices and help the restoration and the scaling, because we need accelerated action. And accelerated action requires our interconnectedness to speed up the best work we can do for the planet and for humanity. I love that. And I guess you also mentioned something else that I think is important, which gets sidelined, is the, our, our wisdom keepers, our indigenous knowledge. You know, um, so I, I guess I'd like to, say, you know, to hear from you why, you know, and to tell the world why it's important that we need to include them in our conversations, you know, from across the globe, because they're the ones who are living on the lands that, that luckily are still restored. But they're not, you know, they're not brought into conversations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what's your take on that? So, so one of the things that I find really interesting mm -hmm. is many indigenous knowledge systems, the languages didn't have the word waste huh. because nothing was wasted. Right. And so in our industrialized society, we've created waste. Mm -hmm. And now with circular economy, we're trying to integrate what is seen as waste as... Um, entry points into either energy, into recycled materials. Right. So we're trying to bring back that wisdom of our ancestors of having circular economies where regeneration is central to how we live in harmony with the planet. And if we think about it, indigenous populations have lived for millennia in harmony with nature. And so how do we look at our amazing digitalized society and say, how do we bring the best of human intelligence, of planetary intelligence, of the intelligence that we're bringing with artificial intelligence and bring it all together to empower the work we do to align with the wisdom of our ancestors and accelerate the good work we can do so that the quality of air everywhere is good, that the quality of food is abundant and sufficient and that we are living our interconnectedness for peace. Wonderful. Um, I have children too, and I think you know everything that we're talking about. It's you know it's critical that the, the world um, that we just all engage. I think and, and and be on the same level. I think it's, you know, instead of fighting each other, we need to connect with each other to overcome all this that we're facing. Um, so I guess in, in terms of that, let's maybe focus down on Africa as a continent. Mm -hmm. Because when we're looking at it globally, we're kind of bearing the brunt of everything that's happening, but contributed the least yes. to what's happening. Yes. And a balance needs to be created. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are your thoughts on, on how to create this balance, I guess? So, you know, uh, a friend of mine who's um, a Nigerian environmental lawyer, he, he, he shared with me a phrase that I, I really keep central to the work I do. And it's, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. And so part of the, the history that we've held in Africa is we have not gotten what we deserved. Right. And so we need to negotiate our space in the world in terms of we hold 26% of the biodiversity on the planet. We hold immense potential in terms of carbon sequestration on the planet. 
We hold immense potential around how are we harnessing renewable energies to power our economies. We still live at a time where most Africans don't have access to energy. And so we can't talk about degrowth if there has not been growth. Right. But how do we accelerate green growth to become central to how we live and work in Africa? And how do we ensure that the needed investments are de-risked to accelerate that growth for us to contribute to a global economy that is positive for people and planet? And so this is also critical because we've contributed the least to this situation. How do we as humanity live our interconnectedness to collectively invest in Africa to bring back biodiversity, to have Africa grow in the greenest way possible? And so that combination helps us reach the net zero and nature positive goals that we collectively need for the planet. And so this is a global issue. It's not just an African issue. Right. And we need to remember that they're critical, the lungs of the planet are here in Africa, and that we have to ensure that areas like the Congo Basin are preserved, are taken care of, are restored. And we have to accelerate this work of how all the positive ways what Africa can contribute can really help us reach the global goals we need to achieve. I completely agree. So I'm going to add, you know, it's, uh, you know, like I went traveling the other day. I'm like, do you think that we're, we're not, are we working hard enough or fast enough or we need to accelerate this, as you said? Like, for example, like we're not changing our daily habits, like in terms of how we manufacture or how we travel, the plastic we use, our daily habits of how we function as a planet, I think need to change critically in order for us to exact some change. Mm -hmm. so, so what are your thoughts on, on, it's still business as usual, even though we're fighting on this side, yet... We still, we still have plastic on our, you know, I'm not, I'm not blaming the aviation industry or anything, but in terms of just how we yes. function in daily lives, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not much is actually changing on the ground level. Or what do you think? So, so I think we need to be really careful to uh, put all the onus on citizens right. and, and, and really understand that our global governance systems are very critical yeah. to what we as citizens of this planet have access to. And so we're still in a situation where we have significant investments happening in plastics, significant investments happening in the petroleum industries. And if you add those up, they add up to what we should be investing in in terms of the sustainable development goals. Right. So you can't put that on behavioral change on right. one citizen right. at a time. Yes. We need our global governance system, we need our financial systems to completely align with what is needed for green growth. But we also have to plan the transition. We can't say we need to stop uh, petroleum industry tomorrow. Right. We can't, so we need to plan a just transition to ensure that we create access to energy for everybody on the planet, access to digital um, information to everybody on the planet, while at the same time, we proactively invest in the transition and accelerating that transition. We know that we're under-investing in climate and particularly in Africa. And so we need to accelerate those investments. And for us as researchers at C4Aircraft, we need to help bring about the needed data to de-risk those investments. Mm -hmm. We need to accompany the governments, the private sector, the smallholder farmers. So we need to create greater interconnectedness in terms of our global innovation systems and local innovation systems that support that just transition. And that's where leadership is needed mm -hmm. to fill those gaps. And this is where the legacy of amazing women like Wangari Mathai are so important. Yes.
completely. Cool. So I guess my, for my final question um, is, I guess, globally and big picture wise, even though we've spoken it, uh, on it, um, Nick, maybe please share what we'd like our audience to know when it comes to us um, as humanity mm -hmm. and our responsibility to nature. Um, what, what would you like to share you know, with everyone listening that you think is important since we have this opportunity and this platform um, to share all this knowledge? Um, yeah, I guess. So, so one of the things is to understand that no effort is too small. Um, one story I love that Wangari Mathai talks about is the hummingbird, where there was a forest burning, and this hummingbird was taking a little bit of water from um, the, the, the water body and trying to uh, put out the forest and the forest fire. And then the other animals were like, you know, what are you doing? And so the hummingbird said, I'm doing all that I can. And so we have to remember that we each do all that we can. When I was a 22-year-old student and my country was going, motherland was going through a genocide, all that I could do was finish writing my thesis, however painful it is. Today, at 51 years old, I'm, I'm heading a, a, a very significant organization that can play a critical role in how we restore our forests around the world, how we change our food systems around the world. And so... This is my life, and in those different stages, there are different things I could do. As a 7, 10, 12-year-old child, I learned to appreciate the beauty of nature. And so it doesn't matter what age you are, it doesn't matter how big or small your contribution is, but make it all that you can, like the hummingbird. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and I've learned so much and I'm sure I'm going to go, go learn some more. But really, <laughs> I really thank you for the, the opportunity and the privilege to joining us on this first in-person um, yes. online GLF uh, session. And uh, yeah, we look forward to having a few more in the future. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Alina. Thank you.